No matter where your business is in Canada, connectivity shouldn't be a concern. Whether your business is rural, remote, or urban, reliable, scalable internet is available to you and your business. Explore Business is expanding our network. With our extensive fiber, fixed wireless, and satellite networks, we're able to bring you the connectivity your business deserves, with the ability to grow right where you are. With investments in fiber and 5G technology, Explore Business is your new choice for business internet. Get connected with Explore Business today. Are you ready to clear a new path? Welcome to Clearing a New Path podcast, a space for the underrepresented voices in rural Canada. I'm your host, Shauna Ray. Each episode, we'll speak authentic truth because it's the truth that connects us. We'll examine issues, solutions, and hope outside of the city limits. Clearing a New Path podcast is an invitation to listen and learn along with me on the road to building a more united, feminist, anti-racist rural Canada, one rooted in diversity and driven by reconciliation. Let's learn together, clearing a new path. Grandview Healthcare Solutions is a grassroots, community-driven organization that grew out of the need to better serve patients in Grandview, Manitoba, and the immediate surrounding area. This is another case of a community coming together to create solutions for rural healthcare. You'll hear clearly how the regional health authority in the area is making decisions that don't work for this rural community and many others, and the frustration from the healthcare professionals and members of the community that the two can't work together to come up with innovative solutions. In this episode, you'll hear from Sue Sterling from Grandview Healthcare Solutions and from Dr. Jacoby Elliott, currently the only physician serving the area. Sue was born in England and came to Canada in 1982. She worked primarily with domestic violence and child sexual assault victims. Her family traveled around Manitoba with work, and they lived in Grandview, Thompson, Gilliam, Lac du Bonnet, and Winnipeg. When she retired, she returned to Grandview. She's been involved with Grandview Healthcare Solutions since 2017. Dr. Jacoby Elliott grew up in South Africa. Her mom was a nurse and her dad a wine farmer. She has two sisters and they are both also physicians. All Dr. Elliott ever wanted was to work in the hospital. She says she loves the smell of the place. She has a diploma in anesthesia and a special certification in emergency medicine. What a compelling message to college members about her experience this year, and I'll leave a link to it in the podcast show notes. 
Hello, ladies. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I know you have busy lives and I appreciate uh, you giving me some of your time today and your insights about healthcare in rural Canada. Who are the communities that you serve? We have Grandview, which is a municipality. We have Tutsawasabing, which is a treaty reserve. And we have Gilbert Plain, Ethelbert, and part of the Duck Mountain. And Grandview Healthcare Solutions came to pass, came to be, how and why? 2017, when the provincial conservative government announced that they were closing 14 ambulance stations across the province because somehow or another their research had led them to believe that these ambulance stations were no longer necessary and that they could do geo-posting with ambulances and have them parked on the side of the road and provide a wonderful service. Can you explain a little bit what I, about what ambulance stations are? Because we, I don't believe we have those in Ontario, although we might have them in rural and remote areas up north. Ambulance station is a place that houses ambulances. We have one that's attached to the hospital here. There is one in Gilbert Plain. There's one in Dolphin, and every community had its own ambulances and their own EMR people, and they were trained to provide specific services, um, and they took care of the ambulances, and they provided assistance in the hospital when they weren't out on the road. So paramedics had powers or um, abilities to assist in different ways. Is that, am I getting that right? I'm going to pass that one over to Jacoby because she's seen it in action. Okay. An ambulance station is generally a building where there's a truck and with the truck goes bodies who are paramedics. And then, yes, the paramedics have skills and that they can then deploy either on the road in the field and then depending where that station is, they might also deploy at the site. So at our site, for example, they would come in and help in the emergency room, for example, if there was a recess or something like that. And sometimes if the ward was very busy, they would help the nurses on the ward. If there was a violent patient, they would act as, you know, if we had a early paramedic, he'd be our security guard and, you know, that kind of thing. It's interesting to me how many different people and, and skills, uh, skilled people are trying to serve so many people. Grandview Healthcare Solutions started in 2017. What's happened since then? From 2017 till the end of 2019, it was a continual round of battles with the government around keeping the ambulance service open and functioning in Grandview. Then going into 2020, when COVID hit, everything changed. And coming out of COVID, they have now, the government have now decided they've got so many other problems, they can't even begin to consider shutting down the ambulances and redoing what they were going to do in the first place. In conjunction with that, and I need to back up a bit, when they did the research around the ambulance stations, they used Nova Scotia, I think it was, as a roadmap to how this was going to work. Nova Scotia's also got rid of their plan. But that was the roadmap they used. Places like New York and the large cities in the States use this geo-posting technique for ambulances. 
So they will send an ambulance to an area where there's a high probability there's going to be a call so that the ambulance is closer. But what they have found that they can't do is they can't keep the ambulances running because the ambulances are putting too much pollution into the air. So wherever these ambulances go now, they have to be plugged into an electric post to keep everything functioning. So I'm sorry, our twisted humor here is we can just see them putting these posts at various areas in, what have we got, a thousand kilometers from the north to the south of uh, Manitoba, just so that the ambulances can plug in in a place that's convenient. Makes absolutely zero sense. And every mathematician I have spoken to has told me that the probability of predicting where an accident is going to occur at any given time is equal to the probability of that accident occurring in a different place. So even their math was wrong. So it's a lot of poor planning, it sounds like to me, uh, that has started, well, probably back in the 80s, I'm going to guess. But the governments of the day are not recognizing what you need, basically, right? No, they're not listening to any of the frontline workers, that's for sure. And so what are you faced with right now? Closure or and in the alternative of these electric ambulance geomapping stations? We have gone from fighting the ambulance fight yeah. to now we're fighting the hospital fight. We're fighting to keep the hospital open because on top of really bad planning again, we don't have enough nurses. Like 90% mm. of the rest of the country, we don't have nurses. And we don't have doctors. So, well, we have a doctor, of course. We have Jacoby here, and she's wonderful, but she can't do it all 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So we need some supports around that. So we're now working at how to get that piece of the puzzle sorted out, along with the nurses. How many days a week are you open? We went from having an 18-bed hospital to having no bed, no hospital. Oh, um, my God. Yeah, I know. It's tragic. I have nowhere to palliate patients. I have nowhere to do medical assistance in dying. I have nowhere to admit patients with pneumonia or heart failure or patients that I see for 25 years and they're, you know, when they get old and frail and they have to wait somewhere before they go to a care home, I have nowhere to put them. So we had an emergency room 24-7 that for the last 25 years we fought tooth and nail to keep open. It was never closed because of a doctor shortage. And your emergency is kind of your contact point, right, um, for everything, everything, absolutely everything. And so that's gone now because it's, it's supposed to get open 8 till 8, but, you know, they close it on a whim because a nurse doesn't show up for a shift and then there's just not an emerge, right? So so patients don't never know anymore, so now they just don't come. So they just, which you can understand, somebody's in a crisis, they're going to go where they know there's an open emerge. They're not going to look up on the web, see what's open. It's a real challenge for us. Yeah, so we've lost a lot. But I do need to say in response to that, Dr. Elliot has extended the hours of the clinic that we have here. We're using volunteers on the weekends to staff 
the front part of the clinic so that Dr. Elliot can do her work in the back. And over the last couple of weeks, we had one young lady show up here that had been to Roblin because that ER was supposed to be open and it wasn't. So she came to us at the clinic. And then from the other side, and Dolphin is the largest community, got a population of around 10,000. We had a young man coming out of the ER that had sat there for six hours and couldn't see anybody on the weekend. And he ended up coming to here to see Jacoby. And they're the two stories that I know about. And I know there are more out there. How far of a drive is that? It's only half an hour. I feel more for the folks who, like, there's a woman here. She doesn't have a vehicle. So she needs IV antibiotics for the next four weeks. She has an abscess in her kidney, right? She needs IV antibiotics. She says, I'm not going out of the community. I'd rather die. She's in her 70s. So we're sneaking her in the back room into the clinic, stealing hospital antibiotics. You know, it's sad. It's, it's really sad. You know, and our regional health authority reacts. They lock the doors in the emergency room. You know, they so like we can't get to stuff. Like, I mean, I can understand you lock up control substances, and that's fine. But you know, be a dick and lock up antibiotics. You know, I understand times change. We have to pivot and we have to be creative. And but just don't be a dick. <laughs> Don't do mean things to patients. Um, and, and that's at the crux of the problem here. It's like the folks who's in power, they're so far removed from patients. So the decisions they make has nothing to do with what's good for the patient, right? Are you adjacent to that hospital, your clinic, where you are right now? Okay. Clinic is connected to the hospital, yeah. Right. And so basically you're treating patients at that clinic because the eMERGE is closed. So they come there, wow, the triage must be insane, trying to figure out who you see next. Yeah, and and I'm skilled. I'm a skilled physician, not to blow my own horn, but I've been at this job for 25 years, and I, I like it. I don't mind it. I understand my resources. I know who's sick, and I can figure that out. I know what's in this region. Patients trust me. I know who to send where, and so let me. Like. I'm willing to work. Um, the whole system is in a crisis, but you take away one more tool every day, I have less things to work with. I have a cushier job as I've had. I do clinic work all the time. I have always acute care skills. I mean, I have anesthesia skills, I have ICU skills, I have an extra emerge qualification. I'm sitting around in the clinic. <laughs> you know, I should be like out there in the minefield, just so upside down, it's insane. I think it's obvious to me, because I can see you, the toll that it's taking on you and on the community. And you didn't sign up for this. No, nobody did. And I mean, that's why people are leaving medicine, right, in droves, because uh, they're morally, we're just like, we're injured, right? And I don't like cliches, but it is a, <laughs> it's absolute moral injury. Like we have, there's things we can do for our patients, right? And we constantly hear, you got to help. We, we want, we can help. We want to help, but we don't have the tools to help. So what would make things better? I mean, what, if you could wave a magic wand and, and get something. There'd be a charge nurse, like there was in the old days, 
and there would be community involvement. We'd have a budget here. There would be involvement from the indigenous community. We'd have two clinics, maybe a hospital run by the indigenous authority, our council, um, and give us a budget and let us do our own thing. Because people who are in power who make decisions have no idea what we need here and what we can do here. They have no idea what my patients need. Does it matter who's in power? No, it doesn't. So they're making decisions, not consulting any healthcare professionals, people who have boots on the ground, people in the community. Do you think it, it should be somehow municipally uh, some kind of engagement with the municipalities? Yeah, I think they should be a player. I don't think they should be the only player. Yeah. Um, like Certainly in our setup, I think the indigenous community is, they're such users of our um, of our healthcare system, and understandably so. They have more, their needs are more. And they're, they've been victimized by colonialism, so I think they need definitely a big voice at the table. I don't think you could make it just here, municipality run your healthcare system. No, I agree with you wholeheartedly that we have to have a broader scope of people with diverse interests in this. It strikes me that we are caught in the box of let's provide this service for the least amount of money possible. Yeah just to make people feel better yeah. rather than let's look at this problem. What is the solution to solving the problem? Maybe it's not coming to Jacoby. Maybe it's talking to a nutritionist. Maybe it's a diet-related thing. We have none of that here. Maybe it's a mental mm -hmm. health thing. We have very limited mental health supplies or services here. So, you have to take a holistic look at what the problem is. And I guess one of the ways that I like to describe this, in Manitoba, it is called the health system. It's not, this isn't about serving the needs of the system. This is about providing services of health to the people. So yeah. first and foremost, we've got to change the title. It's got to be called health services to start with. And then we've got to stop trying to fit square pegs in round holes. Just because the system finds it easier to do it this way doesn't mean to say it's in the best interest of the patient to do it that way. We have to take the needs of the patient, the requirements of the patient, the ideology of the patient, the gender of the patient into account so that they're not fit into these square holes when they're round people. And that's one of the biggest changes I think we need to make. The clinic here is we rent the space from the regional health authority, but we run the clinic privately, right? I run the clinic. The community helps me with that. So we have an R, like an LPN who works here and a nurse's aide and then some clerical staff. And we over there is the institution. And the contrast between the two places is striking. The, the privately run place is lighthearted, it's friendly, um, we can be creative, we let people work through their scope, sometimes outside their scope, and over on that other side, it's it's completely different. There's so many rules, it's so structured. 
and that stands in the way of care for patients. And so, so something that the institutions have to go, like they absolutely have to go. The regional health authorities, it's like it, it's cramping our style to the point that it's, it's thinking us. <laughs> we don't need more healthcare dollars. It's, it's where those dollars are going, where it's spent. Um, and there's, there is no other way to do this other than fire the entire, all the regional health authorities, send those monies locally so that people can figure it out from the ground up, right? Um, because all these rules and regulations, it's, it's just thinking us. People don't want to work in institutions anymore. They just don't. Nurses are calling here asking, they want to come work in the clinic. They don't want to work in the clinic. Like, experienced nurses, they just don't want to work for the regional health authority. So people, the nurses aren't tired of seeing patients. They're tired of working for regional health authorities. They've had it with the institution. We can't organize ourselves, right? We're geographically so spread out. So we, like we, for example, we don't have an organization even as physicians. This remote, I think, rural organization of physicians or something. The folks who run that organization belongs to hospitals that, like, of populations like Brandon, they call themselves remote and rural, but they're like 50,000 people in that community. So yeah. sites like ours, where our voices are too small, where we're just geographically as part of the problem. There's too few of us. So, so you, we're never in positions of where, where decisions get made, right? Um, and so, and we're never groomed in leadership positions, and we're we're just never at the table. There's never enough of us of us at the table. So, folks who make decisions, impactful decisions, are always in geographically bigger areas. So they just don't know what we want and what we need. And we're always getting the message. I'm so sick and tired of hearing like, "Why do you live in a place like that? Nobody wants to live there. You, you're never going to get doctors there. You're never going to get nurses there. Nobody wants to live there." Yeah, we live here, right? And we want to live here. We want to live here. There are people who want to live here. You just have to treat us right, right? <laughs> you know, and let us give us the money, and we will spend it. So that we know how to spend them. We know how to run a place. We know how to spend it. Just like stay out of our business. Okay. You know, like. And another level of bureaucracy with this particular, with the conservative government, is they've created another layer. They've created a, a division of the government called shared, shared health. Now, originally, my understanding was that they were going to be responsible for standards, policies, procedures that could be placed right across the province. <laughs> How to do this particular procedure in a hospital, you will follow these particular steps, is my understanding of how it came about. That made perfect sense to me. But it's developed into such a mishmash of things. They have now taken over cancer care, the management of cancer care, and they have taken over all the lab and diagnostics in the province. Wow. So it's an absolute mess. And to give you an example, this was at the beginning of the summer. We were told that our ER was only going to be open during the week from 8 till 8, I think it was. 
So the nurses got together here and they decided, and they were told that that was because we had a nursing shortage. So the nurses got together and they worked out how to staff the ER 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Wow. So they went to management and said, okay, we can do this and this is how we can do it. Shared Health came in and said, oh, no, you're not, because we're not going to let the lab people work overtime. So talk about the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing. They are so completely and thoroughly disorganized. It is becoming ludicrous, but heartbreakingly ludicrous. And, and it's, it's more than that. Like they, the regional health authority has a master plan and they talk about this. They just won't publicize it, but they, they have this wheel and spoke model, right? They have city in the center Winnipeg and then yeah. it's going to be these big outlying towns like Russell you know Dauphin Swan River and the rest of us just have to like go away and they want the staff from these smaller sites like ours has to drift to these bigger sites they're they're starving us out our sites right thinking we're just gonna go you know I'm just gonna go work in Russell or wherever they have identified this place what they forget is that we're human beings, right? I live in this community. I have all my roots are here by now. Yeah, I moved here, but my friends live here. My cats are here. My house is here. My kid grew up here. Like, there's, I, my patients trust me. Like, you know, I've, I'm, I've been so burned by this regional health authority. If I can't work in this community for these patients, I will not go set a foot in this regional health authority. I will not work in this regional health authority except in Grandview. I'm loyal to this community. I am not loyal to this regional health authority. I want to do absolutely nothing to help them. I will fly to another province, right, to go work there. And but I will not work for them. So the nurse that's been that's my age that grew up in this community she's a third generation nurse if they mandate her to go work somewhere else she'll retire and go do agency nursing and go work on the island with her daughter who's doing the same thing so so you're not making people go work in other communities you're just making people leave your province <laughs> or leave healthcare. the lab tech has a strawberry farm that he's going to go run so, and this is just in our small community that we see this, see this going on. This is going on everywhere. This is how they treat healthcare workers. And we haven't turned the corner. We haven't turned. Like, they've been talking about this for years. Like, when when do they turn and say, holy shit, man, every one of you are, are precious, valuable. What can we do to support you, help you, make you feel valuable? Every day, it's a little bit worse. That's really powerful. I got tears in my eyes. <laughs> how can people help you? How can I help you? How can I support you? How do we, you know, who do we go to? Do we go to the federal government and say, listen, you need to step in. You need to come up with a plan that trickles down to the provinces involving communities in planning. But yeah. we don't have the time for that, do we? Yeah. No, it has to be done in the reverse. We've got no more time to wait for yeah. people that sit in their ivory towers to decide, oh, we're going to look at that community now and decide what's going to happen. Yeah. It's got to come from the bottom up. It's got to be the people that are doing the footwork on the ground, people like Jacoby and the nurses that are running the ER, the community members, the people that are grounded in the communities know what needs to be done. We've got all kinds of ideas. 
We just need people to listen to us and to work with us and stop saying it can't be done because it's never been done before and start saying, I don't know if we can just start with, I don't know if it can be done, but let's have a look at it and see how we can make it work. Change the attitude around it can't be to we will try it. That's what we need to happen. And that doesn't have to come from the government. That just has to come from people's hearts. Our community isn't unique. There was a, a, a rural summit by Docs Manitoba put it on in conjunction with the Chamber of Commerce. 90% of rural municipalities put dollars into healthcare in this province. One of the stories I heard there, so maybe it was biased, but I sat at the table with a recruiter. So she told me about Killarney. Killarney uh, spent, I think, $120,000 to recruit a physician. I think they spent, they recruited three. So what is that, like 360? And so one of these docs was a female and her husband got sick and she wanted to go back to the UK and she did go back. And so the regional health authority said she wasn't able to come back because she had, you know, abandoned their post or whatever, but they weren't willing to work with her. <laughs> so, so, I mean, the recruiter was just, you could see, she was just like fuming. And I mean, she had her money. She had her right. fee. So, I mean, why do you, not like she cared, but she used to, yeah. because she was just fuming. And it's, I think it's a good example of, this stuff goes on all the time. Like, we have asked so many times, why can't the nurses just work, like, four-hour shifts? Why, you know, because some of them are just too old. They can't do 12 hours anymore. And so put her nurse 12 hours, you know, four hours at Christmas. Let the shift so they all have a little bit of Christmas. No, we can't do that. It's the union. Ask the union. It's the union. It's like, no, that's the regional health authority because the next town over, they do it. So they work in the same union, don't they? So it's just the list goes on and on and on. Everything is a no. If you ask the regional health authority, if the sky is blue, it'll be no. They covered our Christmas tree with a garbage bag last year because we had one COVID patient on the ward. I asked if we've been removed it. They said no. I wrote to the Wapanoo, wrote to Prayer Mountain Health, Prayer Mountain Health wrote me a note that said a client complaint person would get back to me within shortly. It's a year later. I'm still waiting. The same time I worked in the ICU at the Health Sciences, there were the most elaborate Christmas decorations I've ever seen. And kudos to them for letting their staff have Christmas decorations. But same province, one place after Christmas tree covered up. Demoralizing, right? Absolutely demoralizing. Same province, you know, must have the same infection control rules, I would think. Right. Right. Well, that's what shared health is meant to be having, right? They're meant to create right. these infection control weather. Yes. That's how they treat us as staff. Now imagine how they treat patients, right? I will tell you a story. There was a, a woman that I spoke to today and she has broken a bone in her back and she came to the ER here earlier in the week and she has been sent to a hospital two and a half, three hours away. Something like that, right? Yeah. Want to be? Okay, so she's a long, long way away. It's 40-some of below here today. Her husband can't get down to see her. He doesn't drive very well. 
My son was going to go and see her, but he can't get there either. So she's in this hospital where she knows absolutely nobody and nobody can get to her. Then on top of that, her brother was in Dolphin Hospital or went to the ER in Dolphin. They couldn't find a bed for him there. So they sent him in the opposite direction and he's now in Russell. And so, so a year ago, the two of them would be in the same hospital, right? They'd be able to have their family, family come and visit them. They would know all of us by name. They'd know all the staff by name. Uh, they'd know all the docs by name. They would trust everybody. The um, minister would be able to go and see them. Like the, they know, they know the cleaning staff. They know the cooks. Yeah. They imagine now the contrast. Can I ask so, you both, both why you got into healthcare in the first place? My mom, I, my mom was a nurse, and my I'm the youngest of three sisters, and my dad was a wine farmer. I grew up in South Africa, and my so on Sundays after church, when my mom was working, my dad took the three of us to church, and then after church, we would have to go visit my mom. And then my mom would take us to the ward where there was all the old folks who didn't have families. And then we had to visit with them. And we didn't like it at the time. <laughs> but I guess that's how we got used to the hospital. And so we just got to, I got to love the smell of hospital and everything about the hospital. And so all three of us went into medicine. We're all physicians. And wow. so, yeah, and so I've always just wanted to work in the hospital. There's nothing else I've ever wanted to do. It's just hospital. And so, yeah, I was going to do nursing, and then my mom is, don't do that. Go so be a doc. And so, yeah, so all I've ever wanted to do. So, and I still like it. I still love it. I love seeing patients. And yeah, I, the clinic's great. And I just feel like a bit of a fraud because I have a lot of acute skills and, you know. You could be you could be them, utilizing but, them, yeah. Yeah, and I'm only 52, so I'm kind of at the pinnacle of my career, right? So, and I'm my skills skills go skills deteriorate if you don't use them, and so if I if I do clinic work for two years, I be a, I'd have to retrain and emerge, but I mean that can be done. So, but yeah. So. Sue, so what I've about you? Worked, I've never worked in medicine. <laughs> I'm a volunteer. Oh wow! Um, I I was raised in England. In England, came here, um, and lived here for a short while, and then moved around the province, and then came back. And in England, I guess I did multiple jobs, but one of them was a police officer, and then I worked with Manitoba Justice. So I spent almost thirty years creating protection plans for abused women, and I learned how to use the system. I learned how to make the system for to work for people that desperately needed it. Yeah. And I guess my attraction is this system is so desperate to have people that champion the underdog, champion the patient, because the docs don't have time to do that. The nurses don't have time to do that. It has to come from organizations like Healthcare Solutions, and that's what we do, wherever we can and however we can. Right now, because of the mess that Manitoba is in, Healthcare Solutions is working out how to support 
um, the nurses that aren't going to qualify for the bonuses that the government has released to get their criminal records check and child abuse check so that they can do a refresher course to get their licenses back once the government's worked out how these refresher courses are going to happen because they've made all the announcements but they've not done anything yet. If you ask me why I'm here, like I, I didn't want to go into family medicine. I thought that was kind of a silly job, right? <laughs> I like emerge and anesthesia and you know, all that adrenaline stuff and I still love that. But then I landed here to come and help my sister and then it really grew on me and the community grew on me because there's nothing like knowing the patient and and the trust. Like I I don't know how to describe that. Like I still do a little bit of locum work up north or I used to I should say and then I get up there and the patients don't trust me. And I'm like, I have to explain to them why, well, actually, I know what I'm doing, you know, and here they didn't trust me. So it's it's such a gift. So I, that's why I don't want to go work somewhere else, right? I want to work in this community because there's nothing quite like that. Um, so, and I know them, right? So, it's, yeah, so it's like an amazing job. So I wouldn't give it up for the world. You know, I just want to continue to tell stories like yours because sadly it's not isolated. There are many, many rural and remote communities that are suffering. They would love what they do and they, they have ideas and innovations and, and can make things work, but they are also tied up with bureaucracy. And what yeah. you're doing is poking the bear of patriarchy, colonialism, capitalism, you know, those yeah. things have to fall yeah. before and anything's going to happen. I do think we have to mention one other thing that is incredibly important to Jacoby because she started it, but also important to the community. Up until this latest round of, okay, you can't do that because, Jacoby was going out to the uh, Tusa thing once a week. Is that correct? Yeah. I'm providing a clinic there for the folks that couldn't get here. And it's only 20 clicks, 20, 30 clicks away. Mm -hmm. But it was an essential service because building trust yeah. with First Nations folks is so yeah. incredibly time dependent. You can't just go in there and say, okay, you're going to trust me because I'm this person. Yeah. You've got to earn their trust. And Jacoby has spent 25 years earning that trust and has got it to the point where they do trust her, but now she can't go because she doesn't have enough staff to be able to leave this place to go out there. And it was fascinating. I've, we don't do very well with chronic disease management with indigenous patients, right? Indigenous patients come to this clinic for their acute care, but I can never convince them to come here for chronic disease management. I, I don't know why, I still don't know why. But when I go there, They'll come and see me for their chronic disease stuff. When I make say, come in, I want to see you about your diabetes, they'll come there, but they won't come here. They don't show up. It's absolutely fascinating. So I was starting to make like real inroads there. So, mm -hmm. you know, it started to feel good and like, yeah, okay, we're starting to manage your diabetes and your COPD and heart failure. And, and then that all falls apart again. So, yeah. Anyway, I hope the red buys the hospital here that'd be just the most exciting thing ever you hope the who buys it the indigenous community the band you think it's, they might would you work for them 
100%. Okay, so that's an innovative idea. Yeah, if we could just get them to do it. (laughs) Well, you've started the inroads with trust, so maybe that's the next thing is working with them to say, you know, buy it and let's work together. I know I'm 100% on board, so. Anything else you want to say? How people can support you? What you want people to know? I want people to keep coming to the clinic. I want people to keep coming to the emergency room. I don't want people to think it's all doom and gloom. We, as healthcare providers, we still want to see patients. We're never sick and tired of patients. We're sick and tired of bureaucracy, management, regional health authorities. But I'm never sick and tired of seeing people. And in fact, that fills me up and energizes me. I think the other thing that needs to be acknowledged is that This community is exceptional. The way that people have come up and said, okay, I'll volunteer to do this, I'll volunteer to do that. We've been running the clinic on a Saturday and Sunday since the beginning of July. I've never, ever had a volunteer not show up for a shift. They come in for four hours or they come in for eight hours. When they say they're coming, they're coming. We know we can trust them. And we've got about 55 volunteers now that will come and volunteer in the clinic to handle the paperwork. Wow. If we were in the hospital, we wouldn't be able to do that. Yeah. Because you can't have volunteers doing a union job. So I spoke to the Society of Rural Physicians of Canada. I think that's who you were referring to, Dr. Elliot. And that's what they're talking about, is somebody could take away the paperwork. Now, they're family physicians, like you said. They're family and and yeah, anesthesia and obstetrics, I think, those particular ones. But if somebody could take the paperwork, you know, if somebody could step in and do that, and not even necessarily volunteers, just other people, so that they could actually concentrate and focus on seeing patients. The doctor, the physician shouldn't be the one having to do all that paperwork. We should never be typing. We should just talk. Somebody should type for us. Um the nurse is the same. A nurse should never have to make a phone call if you think about it, right? Nurses should never touch a fax machine. Like, there's so many of those clerical things going on that the RN on the floor should have, like, a scribe by her side 24-7. Mm. She's a professional. She didn't go to school to be faxing and making notes, right? Thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. I really respect what you're doing. Thank you. Want to keep the conversation going? Subscribe to the Clearing a New Path newsletter. Drop me an email, follow the podcast on social media, and or you can leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Clearing a New Path podcast artwork is supported by the graphic design of Katie Wilhelm, and the music branding is by The Hankering Studio. The podcast is produced by Radar Media in Thames Centre, Ontario. It is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga or neutral peoples who once used this land as their traditional beaver hunting grounds. The First Nations communities closest to the studio are Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, Oneida Nation of the Thames, Muncie Delaware First Nation, and the Chippewas of Kettle and Stony Point. I will speak to many more people across Turtle Island this season And as a settler here, I'm committed to deepening understanding of colonialism, 
the TRC's calls to action into reframing responsibilities to land and community. I am grateful to Mother Earth and Creator for the opportunity for love and connection and to the spirits of the elders and the medicine people who still walk the earth. Until next time, 